Thanks, Mike. I was really worried that wasn't going to work for a moment. Um, <clears throat> well, welcome again tonight. This is week three of um, God's Big Picture as we go through our uh, overview of the Bible. As Mike mentioned, my name is Steve and also have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. And um, tonight, well, last week we looked at what we call the pattern of the kingdom. And we're going to review that just very briefly in just a moment. But tonight's topic, if you had a paper as you came in, if you didn't get one, there's still some more back there. Ben can get you one. It's called the perished kingdom. And uh, it made me think about things that are perishable, which if you go to the grocery stores now, what is the, the new nuance as you go to the produce section? What is true or no longer true on the packages as you pick them up? There's no date on them to tell you when they go bad. They've, they've eliminated all, all the dates, and one could speculate about what the reason is behind that. But just for our curiosity today, just to see how well we are uh, familiar with how long things will keep, this is for your grocery assistance here at King's Church, um, how long will lettuce keep? If it's fresh when you purchase it. How long do you think? A few days? Yeah, a, a week. Now, which, which will last better, loose lettuce or head lettuce? Who says head? Who says loose? If you're a head lettuce person, you definitely are the smart shopper. Head lettuce will last longer. You know one of the most frustrating things for me when I first visited the UK I hadn't lived here yet. I was in a store in Cornwall trying to find eggs. Did you know in America, eggs are refrigerated? So I looked everywhere for eggs. I could not find eggs because eggs are where here? Chicken. Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> that, I'm not even going to go there. Okay. So how long will eggs keep unrefrigerated? Yeah, two to three weeks, potentially, if they stay in the shell and they haven't been washed. That's true. Now, here's, um, here's a bit of a curveball. How long will honey last? Who said it? Forever. Honey will never, ever perish. Apparently... This is the research I've done thoroughly in about five minutes of internet searches. Yes, honey lasts indefinitely, so I am told. It will, it will not perish. It will not perish at all. So hence, it is all, all the more reason why we see it in the promised land, the land flung of... No, no, we're not going there. This is, that would be a horrible, horrible excuse. So anyway, just to get our minds thinking about things that, that perish, because last week we looked at something that was absolutely perfect. We looked at what God had created in this pattern of the kingdom. And if you were with us last week, you remember it was absolutely perfect. We've been looking at all these different pieces of the Bible before we look at that perfect picture. Um, and if you were reminded, or if you haven't been with us, as we look at all the different pieces of the Bible, the different books, the two main sections of Old and New Testament, they really give us one unified picture, which is why we have been talking about God's big picture, because he is 
the one author behind all the human authors, that there is really one subject, and that is Jesus Christ and God's plan to bless the nations through the coming of his kingdom uh, through his son. There's really one book. And so that gives us that one picture of Jesus as king and redeemer, the main subject throughout the entire Bible. The theme of the kingdom of God permeates all of its pages, as we've been talking about. Last week, we looked at the first few pages of the Bible in the book of Genesis. And we saw this pattern of the kingdom, how God, his, his rule is implied throughout all of it, that he made everything. And so by virtue of making everything, he's exercising authority over it. As he made human beings, he says he made them in his own image to do what? To rule. In order to delegate authority to rule, you have to have authority to rule. And so that is what we looked at last week as we have looked at how now in the beginning pages of the Old Testament we're going to see how this theme of the kingdom moves from what was promised and we're going to progress in the next few weeks through to the New Testament into what was what is going to be completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I want to just read another um, a quote that we've looked at, but I think it's, it's worth, for us, uh, worth us looking at it again to be reminded about when we're talking about the kingdom of God, exactly what it is that we're talking about. We're not talking about uh, geographical boundaries per se because all the universe is God's. God made all things. There's not one corner of the universe where his sovereignty does not apply. What we are talking about is that rule and reign coming willingly in the lives of those that he's created in his image. And so this is from Graham Goldworthy's Gospel and Kingdom. Uh, Again, the two resources we're leaning on heavily for this entire series are God's Big Picture, a Bible overview. That's where we got the title for our series this autumn. Um, and also this book, which again, this is very much based on uh, gospel and kingdom. And in that, he writes this. We first see the kingdom of God in the Garden of Eden. That's what we looked at last week. Here, Adam and Eve live in willing obedience to the word of God and God's rule. That's, what, that's again, this is the emphasis of what it means when we're talking about the kingdom of God. And it says, in this setting, what we're going to be talking about tonight, the kingdom is destroyed by the sin of man. And the rest of the Bible is about the restoration of a people to be the willing subjects of the perfect rule of God. And so as we think about that, last week we saw God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place. This is the simple definition we've been working with as Uh, the kingdom of God. God's people in God's place experiencing living under God's rule and blessing. So God's people in this situation, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, and living under his rule and his blessing. Uh, We see God's rule expressed by virtue of his word. He set parameters for them. Do you remember what he said? Of all the trees of the garden you may eat, except for one. We're going to talk about that as that unfolds here in just a a few moments. Um, The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so as we progress through this, what was promised, progressing through to what comes to fulfillment, 
we see these different phases that we are going to be working through. Last week, we, lo we looked at the pattern of the kingdom that we just spoke about, how God created a place for human beings to live in perfect relationship with him and perfect relationship with one another. If you recall, last week it says they walked with God in the garden and they were both naked, the man and the woman, and they knew no shame. That God had created a place for people to live together in perfect relationship with himself and with one another. What we'll look at this week is how that perishes, how that comes to be no more. And so we see, as we said, God made everything that he made human beings, and he made us to live in per perfect relationship with himself and with others. I'm just going to skip a slide here that I didn't want to have. Now, I would invite you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And we are going to look briefly tonight at how this perfect environment, this perfect pattern, if you will, of what it means to live under God's blessing and under God's rule comes to perish. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. And we're going to see how this kingdom perished, and we're going to be introduced to a very important who in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now it says there, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, it's going to be really hard for us to do this, but imagine we, and some of us maybe not, but imagine we don't have any extra knowledge of the Bible at this point. We're just reading through it like a book. And we have read that in the first two chapters how God made everything, that he brought order from chaos that he created human beings in his own image and set them up in this perfect place. And now all of a sudden we are introduced to this serpent who seems to appear out of nowhere. It just says that he was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. So there's no real explanation other than that he is just another creature. His existence is assumed merely as a fact. There's, there's nothing more that's given but if we were to continue to read our way through the Bible, there is a more detailed picture of who this is that emerges as we go throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that this is Satan who has come into this perfect environment, this perfect place where God is created for perfect fellowship with himself and uh, people with one another. And what is clear is how he goes about um, his work at this point. And that he is clearly opposed to God's kingdom as we see it in the pattern. And how do we know that? Because he begins to operate in a seditious way. I love that word. It just kind of, it's one of those words that sounds like what it means, doesn't it? seditious. Just you can hiss as you say it. But what is sedition? What are seditious 
words. I, again, did a brief search to find that sedition is conduct or speech inciting people to rebel against the authority of a monarch or a state. And so the serpent comes in, Satan comes to this kingdom rule that is God's blessing, this perfect place where we, he can, people can relate to him and one another and where there are the blessings and boundaries of his, of his word. And what does the serpent do? He speaks seditiously to undermine the kingdom of God. Look at what he does. He employs doubt. Did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Remember, at this point, how is God's rule and his kingdom being expressed? It is through his word. And so the serpent is coming, challenging the kingdom of God. And again, this is where this paradigm of the kingdom of God is so helpful for us to see that from the very beginning, this is what was at stake in Scripture. And as we see it move its way through from the Old Testament into the New, he employs doubt at the point of God's rule. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Look at verse 2 at how the woman responds. The woman said to the serpent, no, we may eat from the uh, fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And so the serpent responds, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you, when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So not only does he create doubt, did God really say that? Are you sure? Is that what God really said? But he also aims to create dissatisfaction with his rule. Saying God's holding out on you. You were made for more. <laughs> you don't have to live within the boundaries. You can be, you know, as the saying goes, the captain of your own ship, the, the ruler of your own destiny, and all these other things. He aims to create dissatisfaction with God's rule in favor of self-rule. Don't let that slip by you because it is the same problem in the world today from a spiritual perspective. He aims to create dissatisfaction with God's rule in favor of self-rule. You see, that's what the essence of this expression, the knowledge of good and evil, means. It is not simply, I know what's right, I know what's wrong. It involves that, but it involves so much more than that. In fact, a helpful quote from God's Big Picture to share with you. It says this, The knowledge of good and evil refers not simply to knowing what is right and wrong, but rather deciding what is right and wrong. In fact, there are many passages in the Old Testament of kings having this decisive power of declaring what is right and wrong. And with it, you can see the authority that goes with that. 
So this is a bid to be like God, but not in any noble sense, because we're called to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. That's not what this is talking about. This is about usurping God's authority. This is about trying to put our play, ourselves in the place of God. They were usurping his authority and establishing their independence. And so what is it that we always hear that mantra echoed in children and youth here? What is the, the definition of sin? And I put up a picture, right? Here we go. What is it? Shove off God, right? I'm in charge. No to your what? Rule. Not rules, right? Am I right? It is rule. No to your rule. God, I'm going to rule my life. And this is how we see this perfect pattern kingdom that God created for perfect relationship with himself and one another all of a sudden begins to perish. Why? Because there will be no pretenders to God's throne. He cannot and will not tolerate it. I had some metaphors come into my mind, pictures come into my mind. We've seen all the, um, all the incredible pageantry of the queen's passing and all these ceremonies of now that uh, mantle being passed on to Charles and eventually to, to William and all the tabloid back and forth of Harry and Meghan this and William this, right? And, and all these different things. But in the sense that the, the genuine sense I get is no one would say, well, let's just let Harry try. Let, let him be in charge. Let, there's a sense of, no, the, there's a way in which this rule goes. And you won't tolerate someone just saying, I want to do my own thing. God can't tolerate us doing our own thing. He is the one who is in charge. And so the woman and Adam say, shove off God. I'm in charge. No to your rule. And it says, when the woman saw, in verse 6, that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And there's such an incredible play on words here because you remember what Satan and the serpent said, your eyes will be opened to know good from evil. And it's like their eyes were opened. And instead of all of this wonderful world that they thought would come about by being the rulers of their own existence, they realized they were naked. They realized that they were um, exposed <laughs> and no longer in a place of perfect blessing, a place to be known by God and known by one another in a completely safe and life-giving way. And so they begin to try to to cover the downward progression of what God, that perfect pattern, now plunging and perishing. Look at how it progresses. 
The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God. You remember the pattern? What was the pattern? The garden was a place where they could meet with God in perfect fellowship. And now what are they doing? Hiding from him. They hid from him among the trees, but God called out to them. And look, they says in uh, the following, the, the bottom paragraph there, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. So I hid. This is not the pattern of the kingdom. This is evidence of the kingdom perishing. So God asked them some questions. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And notice, <laughs> notice now the continued progression of disintegration of things perishing. Because how do things, um, how do things sort? It says, the man said, well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate it. So immediately, what does Adam do? Two fingers out. God, it's your fault and hers. This perfect place of relationship with God and with one another, Adam at that very moment shoots out two fingers away from himself to God and to others. And everything is falling apart. It's spinning out of control. Sometimes we can just read over these verses and not grasp what is really happening here. It is a tragedy unfolding before our eyes. And he said to the woman, what is this you have done? And she said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So just, again, we're going to follow this through to see how everything um, is. You might get a sense by the name of tonight's talk, The Parish Kingdom, it's going to get really depressing before we have any signs of light, okay? So I'm sorry to just have to tell you that as a warning. But it says, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. I'm not going to touch that tonight, okay? <laughs> and uh, painful labor, you will give birth to your children. But notice how the relationship now with her husband starts to change. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Without going into a whole lot of discussion on this, this is now human relationships, instead of being collaborative and complementary and constructive, becoming competitive and combative. And that's, again, this perishing kingdom. To Adam, he says, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. And so... We had a pattern of the kingdom, remember? What was it? Perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another. That's where these things were to be experienced. Now, what do we have? Anybody know what this painting is? Scream. Anyone can name the artist? See how cultured we are as, as a church. Very good. Wow. An art connoisseur in our senior pastor here, right? He um, was walking along a fjord, I think it was, in Norway. And um, the sky um, was 
ablaze. I don't know they, the speculation of what was making the sun such a, a um, bright and deep color of oranges and reds and all these other things. Um, but one quote he said um, about this, at that, that moment, he said it felt like as if all nature were letting out one infinite scream. And that's where the, the imagery there, the idea, and, and we see this picture, and what are the things that we think about usually how this picture is used is to capture the pain and despair and shame or brokenness and all these different things of what life can be like walking through this world. And what is it, understanding God's big picture overview of the Bible, gives us these points of reference to give us a sense of why are we here? How did we come to this point? And is there hope? And there is. And we're going to get to that. What is this big picture that is unfolding? We're going to try our high technology pen now. Are we ready? Here's, here it is. So we've said we've had, oh no, it's not working. <laughs> the technology is not working. Let me try it this way. Hold on. Maybe this will work. We have our, oh, it's not the color I wanted. Oh well. I'm not an artist. So we have our perfect kingdom, right? Genesis chapter 1. I'll just put a G1 there. Now let's just start thinking through post-fall. And if you have your Bibles open, look at what now happens in the, in the subsequent chapters. This is, say, Genesis chapter 4. What happens Genesis chapter 4? What's the first? It's a first. It's not a good first. What is it the first example of? Murder. Not quite in line with perfect fellowship with God and one another, is it? Then we get to, oh goodness, go back, go back. Sorry, everyone. At least my drawing is still there. Wonderful work of art that it is. Genesis chapter 6. Let's just skip there really quick. Genesis chapter 6. What is the conclusion? As you look at the first uh, few verses, and it says uh, in verse 3. I'll begin in verse 1 of chapter 6. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord God said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. And as you read the account after, it says that there is incredible wickedness on the face of the earth, and God regrets that he even made people. And so in Genesis chapter 6, we have the flood. And what is, what is the, the image we're supposed to get of this is the waters end up covering the face of the entire earth once again. And it is like God hit a big reset button. Because how did Genesis 1 begin? 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God, what was he doing? Hovering over the surface of the deep, and he began to bring order out of chaos. God has now brought the chaos back. It is a downward trend. And we'll go this one more, and then we'll start thinking maybe about some hopeful things, and we'll start wrapping this portion up. Genesis 11. Mike did a quick review of all these things, by the way, in, in our mornings, talking about Abram. What happens in Genesis 11? What was that? Someone over there. Yeah, the Tower of Babel, right? Look at, the, look at Genesis chapter 11. And they start to build a tower. And look at verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Again, the idea there is one of self-rule, one of self-autonomy and importance. So you see from Genesis chapter 1, perfect kingdom to now perished kingdom. We're, we're at rock bottom. We're at the basement. But throughout all of this, go back to Genesis chapter 3, 4. You have Cain and Abel. Cain murders Abel. But look at verse 25. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth saying, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel since Cain killed him. Why was it so important for there to be a replacement for Abel? Go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When God was cursing the serpent, he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. A foreshadowing, some have even called this a foreshadowing of the gospel, of God's promise of there coming a time when what has happened will be undone. And it will happen through the offspring of the woman. And so Seth is born in replacement of Abel. And from Seth to Noah... There are, does anybody in the room love the generations, the genealogies? You love reading the genealogies? They're just, they can be a lot of fun. Most of us skip them because we have difficulty pronouncing the names and they just seem boring to us. But there's a reason why they're there. And there are 10 generations from Seth to Noah. And then there's 10 generations from Noah to Abram. The writer of Genesis is trying to draw us as the readers to something. That even though from the fall it's gone like this, God is also at work preserving a line that will one day lead to that kingdom of God coming in its fullness. We see the promise come to Abram that God, that, that, um, that God gave to him that Mike has been telling us about. And we're going to see that come to its fullest fruition as we come into the New 
Testament. But this is the God's big picture unfolding that even in the midst of God, there's this pattern of the kingdom and that kingdom has perished. There is hope. God has a rescue plan. God has a plan to reverse all of this. And so as we think about this and what we, um, what we want to take away, if you will, as we think about this, is one, to be encouraged by that fact that God has a rescue plan, but also for us to think about this because as we see the kingdom perished, that enemy is still at work. So as you're sitting in this room tonight, just wrapping it up and we're going to sing one more song, it's important for us to think about how do you see Satan using this same approach today? Because the same approach he used with Adam and Eve and the garden, you need to understand the moment he entered onto the scene, he opposed God's kingdom rule in the garden. He still opposes God's kingdom rule in your life and in this world. It's worth thinking about how do you see Satan using the same approach today? Are you doubting God's goodness? Are you dissatisfied with what God's doing in your life? Are you disinterested in what he has to say in his word or spiritual things? Have you thought about the ways, isn't it interesting how much shame came up? We don't think about that much. You know, in, in more Eastern cultures um, and Asian, the emphasis on gospel presentations is on the shame of, the gospel, of, of sin. We in our society, Western culture, focus more on the guilt of sin and penalty, judicial penalty and that sort of thing. But as, and that's true. It's, it's, but both elements are there. <laughs> and shame is something that we don't really necessarily process that well. Think about the ways shame shapes the way you see yourself and others. Think about that. And then pulling those threads together, how can the foreshadows of hope strengthen you in difficulty? What are the foreshadows of hope in this dark, dismal, perishing picture of the kingdom? God didn't give up on them. He called out to them. In his grace and his mercy, he made coverings for them in their shame. He preserved align with a plan through which to bring hope and his kingdom rule restored. We can find, we, we live in a time when God's kingdom rule is not fully realized. We're broken. The world is broken. How do we figure it out? <laughs> How do we find our way? How do we keep going when it doesn't feel like it makes sense? By getting our bearings once again with who God is, what his rule means, 
and where this world is going. God is still bringing people together to be his in his place under his rule. And we need to remember that and be encouraged by that. So let's pray. Father, we do honor you tonight. And um, thank you for the songs, as Mike said, that we sang earlier and Dave led us in. Lord, thank you for those. To be reminded of the great and glorious and good God that you are. And Lord, as we think tonight of this sad and distressing picture of this perfect place of love and acceptance and relationship with you and human beings living in perfect relationship with one another, how that was so insidiously infiltrated and destroyed. How sad and how tragic as we see the different movements of the story and how all that was created good start to crumble and crack. And as we read the ensuing chapters just to see the fallout of that. And we continue to see it in many ways. But Lord, we do thank you. Well, one, we do pray that you would help us to be alert knowing that the same enemy who... um, entered into Genesis chapter 3 on a mission, is still on that mission today to oppose you and your rule, to deceive us, to sow doubt, to cause people to be dissatisfied with you, Father. Give us eyes to see. And Lord, that that is an apt metaphor because how he promises to open eyes Uh, to a a bigger, brighter world. He only opens our eyes to an existence that is painful and steals us uh, of life, doesn't give it. Lord, help us to think through how, how some of the elements of what this parish kingdom brought into the world, the shame, the brokenness, how we're all impacted by that in different ways. But how the hope of what you're doing in the world through your son, because that's ultimately what this comes back to. The hope, the hope is in the one that you promised. The now knowing the rest of the story as we're working our way to it, we know is the rule and reign of your son, King Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that all these foreshadows of hope, all these threads get woven together into a beautiful picture as the Old Testament progresses that finally finds its final shape in the arrival of your son. And so as we think through all these things tonight, as we think about the overview of the Bible, of how the story begins, where it's going, how we can figure out our place in life knowing that story. Lord, would you just um, continue to help us? Would you give us grace to, to understand And would you cause us, Lord, to love you more and desire to willingly live under your rule and reign the more we see the glorious picture, uh, the story of your rescue plan, your redemption uh, coming to life through its pages and in the lives of people today. So thank you for all of this. And uh, we love you. 
And we praise your name this night in Jesus' name. Amen.